Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable meal in his flock and vows to give it but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Amen. Father, you say in verse 11 of chapter 1 of Malachi, my name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Father, we come tonight and we long that your name will be revered and honored amongst us, because you tell us that it will be honored across this world and across the nations. Father, we pray as your word searches our hearts and our minds, Father, would you help us to revere your name by responding to it in obedience, to responding to it because you are telling us what is reality and truth. Lord, help us tonight, we pray, as we come to this book of Malachi, for we ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. If you didn't make it last week, the story so far in the book of Malachi is this, two points from last week, and very short. They are a covenant people. They had been called into relationship with God by election, and they were his covenant people in that relationship with God. Do you remember what we read last week in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God says this to a people who were so wayward and sinful, and yet he says this, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, 
out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God rescued Israel. He chose them not because they were a great nation, but because he loved them, because he loved them. Do you remember that last week with election? Why did he choose us? Because he loved you. Why did he choose Israel? Because he loved you. Second thing we saw last week is that they are now a questioning people. They question God's love. How have you loved us? And we said last week that when you do that, you are on very shaky ground because questioning of God's love ripples out. It affects the way you think, your attitude, your way of life, your behavior, your thinking. It affects all aspects of who you are as a people. And tonight we see in verses 6 to 14 how this questioning of God's love makes its way out into the worship of God. And so tonight, as we begin, we are looking at a covenant people, but we're looking at a questioning people who are questioning the love of God for them. And that core issue ripples out now for the rest of the book. I'm really looking forward to the next couple of weeks. Have you, have you seen the ad? Line of duty coming soon. I'm tired of hearing coming soon. I want a date. The last season, Sarah and I got into Line of Duty, which is a BBC drama um, filmed in Belfast, which is lovely. You see some of the streets in Belfast City. But it's a host of detectives and DCIs who are trying to work out from different departments a sense of an ambush. Do you remember that storyline? Where somebody got ambushed and killed and they don't know whether it's the police or some other people involved. And the drama is set up in such a very clever way because it forces you and I to watch the series and to deliberately work out what's reality and deception. And there's some great characters in it. And you end up trying to work out who's genuine, who's real, who's honest here, or who's a con and and false and dishonest. And at times it can be hard to distinguish between the two, between reality and deception. And yet here in the book of Malachi, we have the exact same dilemma between what is reality and what is pretense here. And I want tonight to look at the question concerning the people of God. Why, what are they doing that is so wrong? And what difference does it make? Firstly, then, what are they doing that is so wrong? In verse 6, God charges his own covenant people with this, with not honoring or respecting him. God's argument is from common decency. Do you see it there? For generally a son honors his father and a master or a servant honors his master. And we would all agree that this is normal expectation, that if you're a son or a father, that you would expect your son to respect you and revere you. I remember one time, we, I grew up in a house full of boys, so we had four younger brothers. I remember one time saying something very disrespectful to my dad. And a boy, he gave me a look that I ran out the door. And, and I was going, why is that? Because there's an expectation that you respect and revere those in authority like a father or a master with its servant. And when a son or servant doesn't honor their father or master, it's frowned upon because it's seen as disrespectful. And God takes the argument here from common decency and he applies it to his common people by saying to them, if I am a father and if I am a master, which he was to the people of God, where's my honor and my fear, says the Lord of hosts? 
And God calls out his people, especially the leaders, the priests, for how they are showing contempt for his name. To which they say, the priests respond in the end of verse 6, how have we shown contempt or despised your name? How have we dishonored your name? How have we not respected and feared you? They're like children again. You know, he's telling them truth. And they're saying, well, how have we done this? And the Lord says to them, they've despised his name, verse 7, by placing defiled food on his altar, polluted food. They respond by saying, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. God's people had been offering, do you see it, verse 8, blind, lame, sick animals for sacrifice when they went to the temple. In fact, it's worse than that. They brought, verse 13, they brought injured ones, probably injured by violence on a field or whatever it was, what we might call roadkill. Um, they brought what was diseased, with that which was on its last legs, animals which were struggling on their feet. In today's terms, they didn't bring Tesco's finest. They brought the value pack brand. And I think that's even been too generous to them because they were bringing animals that were only good to be put out of their misery. In, incinerated probably was what they needed to be. The kind of animal you use for dog food or cat food. Well, not today anyway, it's too sophisticated. But that's the kind of idea that it's only used for waste. But perhaps you're asking, you know, what is the big deal with that? What's wrong with that? Surely it's better to give these animals something than just to incinerate them, an act of kindness, maybe a shrewdness, being environmentally friendly. But listen to the following verses that God had given his people, his covenant people, concerning the animals that they were to bring to the sacrifices and offerings. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated, or having a discharge, or an itch, or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, or give him to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. So it's not a case of that they didn't know. God had prohibited blind, mutilated, blemished animals from being offered to him on behalf of the people. They would have known these things. They would have been very clear. It's not a case of, oh, sorry, he broke his leg on the way in. This was a deliberate act. And to make things worse, the priests accepted them. And so that you have the people and the priests involved in this giving of animals and receiving of animals that were really not meant to be sacrificed to God at all. This is the pretense, the deception that the people of God and the leaders were living. And I want tonight to draw out five implications of it as we look at this passage tonight. That what difference does it make? And the first one is this, the terms and conditions. The terms and conditions of God are important. It may not seem a big issue to us, a couple of lame animals, but it does matter to God. For he had called the people, rescued them from Egypt, set them apart as his own, God's treasured possession, the kingdom of priests. Yet they were setting aside the terms by which God had set out for them, to approach him. God had given them sacrificial and offering system as a means of grace to them. It was their way of atoning for the sins of their people so that they could be make offerings before God, to be made right with him. But the sacrifice and offerings that were coming were under God's terms. And here they were taking those terms and changing them to suit their own needs and their own attitude. They'd set aside God's terms and were coming to him on their own. The temple was significant too. Here's what one 
of the commentator says, Peter Adams, he says, temple worship and the offering of sacrifices were not human efforts to win God's favor, but rather gifts of God's grace to enable the people to come before him with their sins forgiven, to express their thankfulness and commitment and praise. The reality is when we go down the road of questioning the love that God has for us, it puts us on shaky ground. It puts us on our own terms. What we're saying to God is, your word really doesn't matter. I can come to you on my own terms, on my own way. We dishonor God when we do that. We make a mock of his holiness and we don't revere him as he says to his people. And this is what was happening here in Malachi's day. And verse 8, he says to them, very cheekily a little bit, and he says, present those to to your governor and see, will he accept them? And I suppose that is the question, isn't it? Here they were given the God who had rescued them, the God who'd brought them into relationship, animals that you wouldn't even give to the governor because he'd throw them back at you. And God says, you see the answer, the governor wouldn't accept them or show favor because you're being disrespectful. You dishonor me, you treat me like muck with such offerings, giving me these leftovers. Our terms of coming to God have always got to be on his terms. Our terms of worship, our terms of song and praise, our time, our resources, our life has to be on his terms. The second thing we see here is they blame shift. The people have gone down a road of pretense, which led them to despising God's means of grace to them. The offerings were polluted, and so in turn was the Lord's table, the altar. You see the people in verse 12, what they say? They were saying that the food is despised, and so then is the table. And so as time goes by, the whole act of offering and sacrifice had become a burden, weariness to them, bore them even. They sniff or snort at it. I don't know if you own a dog, but we live in Bangor. We don't live too far from the beach and we'll often go down with the kids for a walk. We don't have a dog, but I've observed that dogs are great at snorting, aren't they? You let a dog loose in grass or on a beach And what he will do is sniff around like mad, especially at the initial stages. And then he'll snort at something which he doesn't really like. And that's the idea here in this passage, that here are the people of God who've given their animals who have been blemished and defected. And it's as if they are just snorting at the table, the altar of God and the sacrifice. They're dismissing it. It has become a burden, a weariness to them a boredom to them, and they snort at it. It's despised. And be warned, this is what happens when we live in a deception, when we look the part, but inside our heart, attitude is not there. And after this time, the whole act of worship, of gathering maybe with God's people, of reading, of listening to God's word, prayer and mission, both locally and abroad, we begin to see it as a bit of a burden. We snort at it, we sniff at it or we complain about it, or we moan about it. And that's what happened to the people of God as they engaged in the worship of God here by the means of offering and sacrifice. It became boring for them. It became despised. They snorted at it. And the difficulty can be, the same principle can be for us, that if we live a deception, if we live a life where we are going through the motions, we'll just get bored of it. 
We'll just moan and complain about it because it's not really affecting anything. And that's what was happening here with God's people. They had blame shifted. It's the Lord's table that's the issue, not us. Thirdly, they were cheating God. And verse 14, you see, living this way of life before God means that they were self-deceiving themselves in the life of pretense. And it ultimately leads them to trying to con or cheat God. Do you see it in verse 14? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. You can understand what's happening here. If you've a herd of cattle or sheep or whatever it is that they give in, you have a lovely little perfect two-year-old. It's running around and you think, I'm going to give that to God. I'm going to give it as a sacrifice to him. The vow is made. You've made, you're going to do it. But then you change your mind. And Sean the sheep with the broken leg is brought in as a replacement. And notice how God speaks of this person. He says, cursed is the cheat. You see, making vows, and we'll hear more about this in Malachi later, and having them unfulfilled before God is worse. It is giving God second best. The reality is we cannot con God. We may be able to cheat and con other people. We may look the part sacrificing and offering what is to God, but God knows our very heart and our inner workings as people. Here we're a people who are going through the motions of religious life. Offering and sacrifices. You couldn't deny that they weren't doing it. They were. But their attitude, heart, and emotions towards God were cold, far removed from. And so God speaks openly to them in Malachi chapter 1, verse 10. Do you see it? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple door so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord. And I will accept no offering from your hands. God is saying here, literally, it's better to close the shop. It's better to close the temple door. Would one of you, so that you wouldn't stoke the fire of the altars in vain. Because God takes no pleasure in these false pretenses of offering and sacrifice. As one commentator puts it, no worship at all is better than cold and negligent worship of God. This is God's perspective for his people, that God doesn't take pleasure in their worship, that it is false and a pretense. This is not the first time that God has spoken to his people like this, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. Do you remember when we did the book of Amos here last summer? No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) In chapter 5 of Amos, he wrote this passage. Listen, Listen to how this must have impacted. I hate I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen. Extreme words but reality and truth, God is speaking to his people. We're not brave enough to take the course of action that God says here. Are we? Shut the doors at the back, please. Stop the music. Stop the praise. Stop pretending when it comes to our Christian lives. We're we're not brave enough to do that. You know why? Because just like these people, we love the show. The appearance of Christian things, the appearance of our culture and worship 
we would hate to lose face. We try to convince ourselves we're doing okay with God, but the reality is our heart and our lives are far from him, which ultimately dishonors God and his name. Wouldn't it be awful of God if he were to say, shut the doors, away with your music, don't praise me, I'm not pleased with you. And folks, there are people here tonight who are in that place where our worship is a pretense. It's deception. We go through the motions. And is God saying these words to you? I hope he's not. But he does it so that his covenant people will awake, will repent of what they're doing, and turn their hearts back to him. Fourthly, we see in this passage, in the implications of it, it's the way we do things around here, culture. And the culture among the priests and leaders and the people in Malachi's day was that the priests were accepting this type of offering and the people were given it. It's the culture. It's the way we do things around here. And it continued on. The people gave and the leaders allowed for it. So it became the normal practice. So it became the culture, the way we do things around here. And folks, the warning in this passage is that we can have blind spots where we can conform to culture and the norms around us, not only in society outside, but also within the church. And that's what was happening here in Malachi. As they came to worship, the leaders took it, and the people kept on giving, and nothing was said until God spoke to them reality and truth. And I suppose the application here is, what do we accept as normal? What do we agree among and practice here that we go, it's our culture? We're East Belfast. This is the way we do things. Because the wonderful thing about God's word and his calling is that kind of attitude God always speaks into. And we have to keep on asking, what does God's word say about our culture? What does it say about the way that we practice our worship, our preaching, our community life together, whether it's in PW youth group or fellowship group, We always need the word of God to be evaluating our norms and culture. It is essential to keep on looking at what God calls and requires of us as his covenant people. It is too easy to drift into the patterns of behavior, the patterns of service, rhythms of speech and thought, how we treat each other and say to ourselves, this is our norm, this is our culture, and be accepting of it. Because that's what was happening with Malachi here and his people. They'd accepted this as norm. This was the way they did things. But in reality, they're moving further and further away from God. Fifthly and lastly, the question has to be asked, what do they think of God? When I was uh, ministering in, in, in Bangor, I used to go into these beautiful houses, um, well decked out um, for visits. And they brought into the special room on the right-hand side, which I always hated, a room that nobody ever used. It was the good room. <laughs> Um, and got a lovely cup of tea and buns sometimes. And, and you know what? You go in and you just go, this house tells me something about the people, doesn't it? Or if I give a gift to my wife, Sarah, it tells you something about what I think about her. So at Valentine's Day, if I give her a miserable bunch of flowers that I just bought on the way home, what does that communicate about her? It tells you, you know, she's an afterthought. It tells you something about her. And the kind of offerings here 
that we see in Malachi's day tell you something about what they think about God. Here is what they were offering. And fifthly, this is the point, what did they think of God as they gave these lame animals, one-eyed animals, broken-legged animals, mutilated, injured animals? What was it communicating? It was communicating this, he's not holy, he's not great or worthy of our utmost efforts and praise and glory. If this is what's being communicated about God, will he just let that continue? Should he let that continue? Will God just have to put up with it? It's our culture. Or what does God say? Because in verse 11, he says this. God tells us who he is and his desire. My name will be great among the nations. From the rising of the sun to the setting, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. You getting it? Here he's saying, my name will be great in this world, in this nation. That's why I'm, I'm bringing you to task over this people of God, he's saying. Anywhere you go in the world, you'll see the following signs. It's amazing to think that whether you go to Asia or Australia or South America or Europe, I remember taking a team of students to Ukraine and they had a bout of uh, dicky tummies and, and diarrhea and all this and they didn't want to eat more borscht, which is this kind of soup that the Ukrainians love. And so we took them to McDonald's as a cure, which is never a good thing. And so they were, when they saw this, they were going, oh, this is great. <laughs> McDonald's in the center of uh, Donetsk in the southeast of, of Ukraine. But you can get the same burger in that country that you can get down in the cons water down in McDonald's, down there, because McDonald's is global. And that is exactly what God is saying about his name here in verse 11, that he's saying it will be global. It will be recognizable. It will cross over country and place. And it will be global. From the rising of the sun to the setting, the vast spans of territory, the Lord's name will be great. And in every place there will be offerings and worship to him. His name will be great among the nations. Wow, what a contrast to the previous verse, which have shown a people reluctant, disdain and dishonoring of the name of the Lord of hosts. Yet it has always been the purpose of God for his name to be great amongst all the nations. If you follow a sweep of Old Testament passages, let me take you on a little tour of it. In Genesis 1, verse 28, God blessed humanity. And what did he say to them? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and every living creature. Why did he want them to fill the earth? So that as they went... They brought the name of God with them. They filled the earth. Even Noah, after the flood, is told again, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so that the name of the Lord is spread out among the nations. Even at Babel in chapter 11 of Genesis, with all the language confusion as a part curse, it is again used by God to spread the nations out so that they will bring the name of God to the world and to the nations around them. We could talk about Rahab, Naaman, and many others who from different nations come to know the greatness of God. But then when we come into the New Testament, we see a very significant passage with the woman at the waterhole who Jesus meets. She debates over him, where will we worship? Will it be in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim? 
And she wants the other mount. Jesus says it'll be in Jer- doesn't say it'll be in Jerusalem. He says this to her as the Messiah, the Jew. He says to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. It has always been God's plan that he wants the world filled with his name and worshippers. At Pentecost, the apostles spoke in different languages so as to communicate to the variety of people that were in Jerusalem that day. They were cut to the heart and sought repentance and baptism. Did they stay in Jerusalem? No. They went over all of the world, telling the name of Jesus. And then we see in Revelation 7, a people from every nation tongue and language praising God before his throne because God's name will be great among the nations. This has been God's plan since the beginning of time that his name would be known and great among the nations. And the question is, what difference does this make? Why does he tell them this in Malachi? Could it be a reminder to the people of Malachi's day that God will honor his own name He will not allow for his own name to be dishonored. This encourages us to think that God will honor his name, that he will have worshipers who will bring right and proper respect and worship to his name. But it also should be a warning to us that if his people persist in deception, in dishonoring, in not fearing his name, God will call others to honor him, others to worship him, others to fear him, because they will see the greatness and love of the mighty God. He will call others. And folks, we live in East Belfast, where particularly with the Presbyterian, it's dying out. You know what? If we don't honor and revere him, he'll call others to do it. He'll call others to love him and worship him. We have no patent on God. We have no monopoly on him. God will continue to call a people to himself who will honor him, revere him, rejoice over his mightiness and goodness. And the folks, the reality is it can be so easy for us to every Sunday just to perform our duty with hundreds of people and think that's it. This is what's required of me. I've done my bit. Where we act like we are Christians, but in reality we're like these days of Malachi. Verse 11 is a reminder that God will look after his own name by calling others to himself who will not be saying to God, how have you loved me? How have we despised you? How have we polluted your altar? Instead, he will call a people who love him because of his covenant and election love towards them. They will be those who will give their lives for him and have their God and worship him in spirit and truth. They will not be leftovers or the dregs, but their utmost and best because they've come to know God's greatness. They will be a people who desire to make the greatness of God known both locally and abroad so that God's name, particularly his son, the Lord Jesus, will be lifted high. Folks, my desire for myself and for you is that we will be God's covenant people who revere and love him and follow him, that we're not a pretense or deceiving ourselves. But if we are tonight, God's word is saying to us, He will make his name great across this world. But we have the beautiful opportunity as his people here to say, Lord, we want to be part of that. We want to be a people who revere him here and now.
we want to know him in amongst ourselves. Take encouragement tonight that God's name will be great and known among the nations. He will have worshippers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. May we be that people. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you tonight for your word to us. We thank you that it is good and that it is loving. And Father, as your word searches our heart and our attitude and our mind, Father, we pray that you'll help us to realize that we need to come to you on your terms and conditions. Father, will you help us not to blame shift onto other things? Father, we ask that you would help us not to cheat you by making vows and not fulfilling them. Father, we ask that you will help us to understand our culture, both within the church and outside, that it may be evaluated by your word and what you require and desire of us. And Father, we ask that our heart attitude and our worship of you with all of our life would reflect that we believe that you are a good and mighty God whose name will be made known across this world. Father, forgive us for deceiving ourselves and you. Father, help us to come and confess those sins where we haven't given you our all or our utmost or our best. And Father, we pray, help us not to be deceived. But Lord, help us by your word to rejoice that the Lord's name will be great among the nations. And Father, we thank you tonight that you are calling a people unto yourself who will make your name known. And we long to be part of that here in this local church, Father. We long to be a people who worship you in spirit and in truth with all of our life for the glory and honor of your own name. Lord, bless your word to us and leave it with us to dwell and to mull over. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.